Last week, Pastor Ed started a new series called Resilience, and one of the points that he made is that resilient people have a disciplined spiritual life. They invest intentionally and methodically in their spiritual well-being. That's one of the things that makes them resilient. Well, this morning, we're going to hear the next installment in the series and about the necessity of, of leaving the past behind if we're going to be resilient people. So we have a responsive reading. I'm going to need your help with this. I'm going to have you guys read the first two of these slides, and then I'm going to read one, and then we'll all read the last one together. So take a look on the screen, and we'll read this together. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we will throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles us. And we will run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We will consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's pray. God, I feel like there are some this morning who are weary, people who are well aware of the length of the race, and they are losing strength and losing hope. And so I pray this morning you would speak to them. We are mindful of the destruction and the despair in the wake of hurricanes and earthquakes this week. We're painfully aware of our own frailty and human frailty and the fact that we just, in spite of all of our technology and our skill and knowledge, there are some things that are bigger than us. And so we pray that you would use those who follow you in other parts of the world to bring hope and healing and relief. Help them to love and serve sacrificially in the midst of all of the destruction. And for those of us who can look in our own lives and see a path of destruction and despair in the wake of decisions we've made or of hurts and situations maybe that we didn't have any control over and yet we can turn and look behind us and see the clear path of damage. We pray this morning that you would speak to us, that you would encourage us. Give us hope, give us direction, give us encouragement for the journey ahead because we want to be resilient people. We want to be people that run the race and don't quit halfway. We want to see it through to the end. So we ask for you to speak to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much for being here today. If you're a guest, welcome. We're really glad to have you. We're in a series talking about resilience, stick-to-itiveness, bouncing back from difficult circumstances. And you cannot make it over the long run if you don't build resilience into your life. And life is a, a long-run race. You know, we often talk about how short it is, and it really is short. But, it's, you know, it's, life is not a sprint. Life is a marathon. So I've got some rocks that I have collected from our property that I'm going to drop into this backpack. That's kind of a big one. Here's the thing about dropping these rocks, a small one. Wow, that's already heavy. 
dropping these rocks into this backpack. If I sit here and don't do anything with these rocks, then this is not really going to be a problem. In fact, honestly, that's pretty comfortable. I could watch television with this uh, sitting on my lap. But if I get up and try to move around, if I try to do anything, if we say this afternoon, hey, Gateway, let's run a 10K, if I try to do that and load this onto my back, every step is going to be made that much more, just a little bit incrementally, that much more difficult by the load that I'm carrying. So we're going to use this this morning as an illustration of, I want you to imagine that the rocks in this backpack are things that have happened to me over time, disappointments, hurts, uh, things that people have said to me that have, have bruised my spirit or my ego or there's been a loss of flight in my heart and in my confidence. And little by little over time, these things get added onto my backpack and so, as I'm doing life, as I'm doing relationships with some of you, as I'm building relationships with new people at Gateway, especially as I'm doing relationship with my wife, Diane, or I have three boys that are, that are grown men now, and as I'm doing relationship with them, everything I'm doing, you know, if I sit and do nothing, it's no big deal, but if I try to accomplish anything, it becomes an inhibitor. It weighs me down. It makes everything more difficult. My resilience is tested. It's tried. It's strained. A number of years ago, I had the opportunity to spend a weekend with a life coach. And it was, a, it was an incredible privilege. This guy usually does coaching for people who are far more important than I am, but I knew his son. So I had an opportunity to spend a weekend with him, and we spent the day together on Friday, and then he sent me away to a lake house that he owned and gave me some exercises, and then we got back together on Sunday afternoon and, you know, talked about what God had done during that time. So in our time on Friday, we get together, hey, tell me about yourself, and we're having this nice, friendly conversation, and then from my perspective, you know, it goes south in a hurry, and he starts stepping on my toes, and it's, it's one part kind of coaching, and it's one part therapy, and, but it's really good stuff, and he, so he asks me about Diane, and we talk about Diane, and I tell her, you know, what a problem Diane is to live with, and you guys don't have any idea. Actually, the sweetest person in the world. And then he starts asking me about my family of origin. Tell me about your mom. And, you know, I've got mom issues. So my mom was mostly, at least from my perspective, she's kind of a single mom, school teacher, and awesome. She was great, but, you know, her name was Clem, and say no more. And Clem had her deals. So we talked for a while about Clem, and then this coach says, tell me about your dad. So I say, well, you know, my dad died when I was 10. And he's kind of one of these old school guys. I, he didn't spend a lot of time with me. He, we didn't really hang out. I'm, I don't actually have many memories of my dad. Yeah, well, what memories do you have? Well, I mean, they're mostly warm memories. I mean, I can actually remember my dad's hands. He had kind of beefy hands. And he would occasionally tickle me. And I remember, you know, holding my dad's fingers or something. Yeah, okay. What are any specific memories? Like, what are the first things that come to your mind when you think of your dad? I got nothing there. You sure? We pause for a second. Well, honestly, there's this time, and I had a memory that I, I don't think I'd thought, I thought, I don't know that I'd ever recollected this memory. I was playing Little League football, and somehow, by poor team game planning, I guess, I ended up with the ball, and I'm running, 
and I kind of get around the end, and I'm running down the field, and I think I'm good. It's like a long, you know, football field. I'm the whole length of the field, and I'm running, and I get very near the goal line. I don't remember where it was, but I'm inside the 10-yard line, and this kid comes from, you know, the side, catches me, and tackles me. And I fall to the ground, and distinct memory. Hadn't thought of this in years. I look up through my helmet, and my dad was standing right there on the sidelines. And... I remember it feeling kind of good. My, you know, he never even came to my games much. And I, and I remember thinking how awesome it was. After the game, I remember going to my dad and thinking, he's going to be really proud of me. I must, I don't know, I'm going to exaggerate, but I must have run the ball 400 yards. Football field's only 100 yards long. And I go up to him, and I've got helmet in hand. But the first thing my dad says to me is, why'd you let that boy run you down? I remembered an incident when I went to, he was taking me to buy a bicycle. I wanted a bicycle for Christmas. I must have been nine, maybe eight. And those of you who were born in the 1840s like me, you'll remember those old bicycles that had banana seats. So I wanted me some banana seat bicycle. So we go to the store to look at bicycles, and I remember walking over, wow. And my dad says, that is the stupidest looking bike I've ever seen. So let's get a normal bike. And I remember my heart was crushed. So resilient people run free of the weight of the past. They don't run from the past, but they run free of the weight of the past. They know that in order to run well over a long distance, they have to run light. Resilient people understand they will make mistakes, sometimes terrible mistakes. They also know from experience that bad things happen. They will be challenged. Other people will hurt them and disappoint them. Crises will happen. These things must be dealt with, and resilient people know that. They know that these things must be dealt with well and as quickly as possible because resilient people run free of the weight of the past. Now, if you've got some kind of Christian education in your background, including you teenagers, then you may know the story of the Old Testament story of a, a guy named Joseph. But let me give you an overview of that story this morning because Joseph is illustrative of this. Joseph had a complicated family of origin. If he'd sat down with my coach and he'd asked to talk about his mom and dad, it would have been a long conversation. His father, Jacob, had several wives and many children, including 12 sons with various mothers. But Jacob's favorite wife, and just that phrase gives us a hint at the dysfunction in this family, doesn't it? Jacob's favorite wife was Rachel, who was Joseph's mother. So Joseph's brothers believed that Joseph was their father's favorite, and maybe with good reason. Well, favorite son Joseph had what he claimed to be a God-inspired dream in which his whole family bowed down to him. And he shared this dream with his brothers. Perhaps this was youthful innocence. I've always wondered if there wasn't a little arrogance in the sharing, but either way, it wasn't smart. And the brothers didn't exactly appreciate the dream, so they concoct a very unbrother-like plan to sell their punky little brother and dad's favorite into slavery. 
I'm reminded of those stories you read about young girls who get sold into terrible marriages to, to save the family, but it's honestly difficult to think of a modern-day equivalent of this. Let's just say the b- brothers did Joseph a wrong that was unimaginable for us. This was the absolute height of cruelty, betrayal, and abandonment. Then they lied to their father about what happened. They claimed that their brother Joseph had been attacked by wild animals and killed. Problem solved, arrogant little punk, favorite son, no more an issue except the brothers were unprepared for their father's grief. And I believe they were unprepared for their reaction to their father's grief. So I'm going to read now a short section of this story from Genesis. This is recounted for us in Genesis, and I'm going to be looking at chapter 37, verses 34 and 35. Listen to this. It's on the screen. Then Jacob, the father tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Here's the thing. Over the next couple of decades, Joseph's story becomes an adventure in resilience. He's eventually after some misadventures, sold into the service of Potiphar, who's a high-ranking Egyptian military man. And over time, Joseph rises within the ranks of Potiphar's household servants until he eventually becomes chief steward of Potiphar's whole estate. Chapter 39, verse 4 of Genesis tells it this way. Potiphar put Joseph in charge of his entire household, and he entrusted into his care everything he owned. That's an utterly amazing a turn of fortunes, and and here's what I find especially interesting. There's no evidence, pause for dramatic effect, there's no evidence of bitterness in Joseph. There's no evidence of self-pity. He wastes no energy in justifying himself or in rehearsing all the bad things that have happened to him. And let's be clear, this is, this is one of the most elaborate and detailed stories in the whole Bible, and the Bible is never shy about sharing the failures of its protagonists, and still, no bitterness in Joseph. It's shocking that Joseph, by all appearances, seems to be running completely free of the weight of his past. All of that betrayal, all of that cruelty, all of that family dysfunction, and eventually the abandonment, it just doesn't weigh Joseph down. But the story's not done, and you'll remember that if you know it. Once again, circumstances conspire against Joseph, and and Potiphar's wife ends up accusing him of making unwanted sexual advances against her. In truth, the exact opposite is what happened, but the truth doesn't seem to hold much weight here, and Joseph is put in prison and presumably forgotten. Again, Joseph is in an Egyptian prison. There are no civil rights there. There's barely food. And there is no evidence of self-pity or bitterness. There is no elaborate self-talk about revenge, nor any rehearsal of all the wrong that has been done to him. And you know those kinds of self-talks, don't you? I do. After a time, Joseph is given an opportunity to interpret a dream through a weird set of circumstances. And the key thing is that the dreamer happened to be Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. To make a long story short, as circumstances would have it, Joseph's interpretation and the wisdom he expresses around that interpretation eventually land him in the job of vice president of Egypt. 
Here's where the story gets especially illustrative for our purposes, I think. There's a famine over the whole world. Egypt alone is prepared for the famine, primarily through Joseph's leadership and his wisdom. And eventually, Joseph's brothers, that's right, the same brothers that sold him into slavery, have to come from Palestine to Egypt and before Joseph and ask him to give them grain from Egypt's stores. They have to bow down before Joseph. That's right, Joseph's dream, and ask him for provision. And in the process, they don't recognize Joseph. They think he's the vice president of Egypt. After all, he is. When Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers, he teaches us a profound lesson in resilience. Let me read you that brief passage. Chapter 45, verses 1 through 3. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. They were terrified at his presence. Isn't it obvious? Jacob's sons have spent their entire adult lives straining over the guilt of having betrayed their brother and their father. Their lives have been constrained by the weight of the past. And this incredible set of circumstances has brought them face to face with their guilt. They are paralyzed. And I would guess they've spent much of their lives paralyzed. But Joseph runs free. Joseph runs so free that he's able to offer freedom to his brothers. So I'm going to read the next section, 45 verses 4 through 9. And let's do something. Let's do some spiritual aerobics and let's go old school and stand out of reverence for this part of God's Word. I want you to hear this section and I want you to hear what resilience sounds like and feels like to the ears and to the heart. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Remember that. For two years now, there's been famine in the land, and for the next five years, there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph said. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You may be seated. Resilient people run free of the weight of the past, so let's break that truth into three more manageable parts. And I have to tell you by way of introduction to these three parts, we're going to break that down. But as we do so, even the broken down parts are large parts. We could spend months talking about what we're going to talk about in just the next few minutes here. So this is by necessity, going to be high level, and I'm hoping that God will choose one or two places in each of our lives where we need to drill down, and I'm praying that we will so. Okay, so 
Manageable part number one, resilient people understand the importance of a healthy memory track. Resilient people understand the importance of a healthy memory track. Here's what we mean. Therapists remind us that a significant percentage of who we are is put in place when we are very, very young. In fact, I saw an article this week that said 90% of our personality is in place by the time we're six years old. They've given six-year-olds personality tests, which they can understand later long-term studies. Those same people as adults, personality tests, there's very little change. I saw another article that said, quote, the overwhelming majority, end quote, of how we understand and relate to the world is in place, fully in place, by the time we're 10. If that's even half true, then it's critical for us to recognize and to deal with our history. I mean, many of the major building blocks for how we relate to the world, how we relate to ourselves, how we relate to others, they're put in place in childhood. What if some of those building blocks are out of place or or what if some important building blocks are missing? Or what if some of the building blocks are unnecessary or worse, they're harmful? Our past has incredible power to influence our present and our future. And any amount of time we spend with unnecessary junk in our backpack translates into unnecessary and unhelpful fatigue and worry. Any amount of time that we spend with unnecessary junk in our backpack translates into unnecessary and unhelpful fatigue and worry. We cannot live with resilience if our backpack is full of unnecessary weight. If you come into a marriage, for instance, weighed down by a backpack full of past hurts or regrets, your capacity to be a healthy spouse over the long term is limited. Resilient people know the importance of a healthy memory track. Imagine what Joseph's life, don't dial out. Stay with me for this. Imagine what Joseph's life would have been like had he allowed himself to be preoccupied with his past. Bitter over the treatment he received by his brothers. My own brothers sold me into slavery, and why? Because they were petty and jealous. Those petty, jealous SOBs. Imagine Joseph ready to share that with anybody and everybody who would listen. Imagine Joseph with deep-seated abandonment issues. You need help? Well, everybody needs help, buddy. I'll help as soon as I know I can trust you completely. Do you think that Joseph gets Potiphar's attention? Do you think that Joseph becomes vice president of Egypt? That Joseph doesn't have the stamina to go the distance. That Joseph isn't free to be used by God. But resilient people are free to be used by God because they run free of the weight of the past. They have healthy memory tracks. Think about the things that get stored in this backpack. You'll never amount to anything. Why are you so fat? How could you be such an idiot? You always get it wrong. These kinds of words and the experiences that communicate these words to us exercise incredible power over our lives. They take incredible space and they demand incredible energy, or to be more exact, stealing ourselves against those words demands incredible energy from us. They burn up our resilience. I think of Anwar. Anwar could never please his father. No matter what he did, it wasn't good enough in his father's eyes. 
So Anwar spent his entire life burning through opportunities and people trying to prove his father wrong. At 50, he had lost touch with both of his grown children, his former wife, his only brother, and a string of girlfriends. Anwar's assessment of his life was, I'm exhausted and I haven't even done anything. I hope Anwar's story is extreme compared to yours, but the principle is the same. The weighted backpack has limited Anwar's capacity to be resilient. And there's more than just hurt that has to be done to us in these backpacks. There's also the problem of the things that we have done or said to others and the strategies that we've adopted for dealing with that kind of hurt when it comes again. The nine-year-old Ed makes a vow, I will never be hurt like that again. It's not a conscious vow. It's deep inside. And the rest of my life, I live out in light of the strategies that try to avoid that kind of hurt and disappointment. There are the rocks of guilt and shame and regret. We are like Joseph's brothers. We have hurt others, betrayed others, minimized others, and we stash rocks in our backpack as a result of that as well. Resilient people understand the importance of a healthy memory track. They know that backpacks must be kept as clean and as light as possible. Listen, I don't think we intend to carry extra weight. I think things like this get stored in our backpacks for a variety of reasons, right? One, some of us don't know how to deal with our rocks. I think of Helen, whose mother was a schizophrenic. Helen spent her entire childhood hiding from her mom's wildly unpredictable anger and taking care of her two younger sisters because her mom was institutionalized periodically. The first time that happened, Helen wasn't old enough to take care of herself, much less two young siblings, and no one came to help. So Helen moves into adulthood having stored many rocks in her backpack long before she had any understanding of how to deal with them. Some of us store things in our packs because we want to use them. I think of Delilah, who was emotionally abused by her husband for years. Through it all, she stored stuff away until she had enough anger to fuel the courage that it took to leave. But she paid the price for that burden and would for years to come, and so did her children. Some of us store things because we've buried them. I think of Tim, who has almost no memories before the age of 12. In fact, Tim would say he had no memories until he ran into an old babysitter one day as an adult. After a lengthy conversation, Tim asked the babysitter to send him a note with some of her impressions and recollections of him as a child. And she took the time to send a very lengthy, very detailed letter that triggered a flood of old memories and eventually led Tim to counseling. After a few years of counseling, Tim would say he feels like his full self for the first time ever. Now Tim is ready to live with resilience. Resilient people know they must work with their past. They know the importance of a healthy memory track. Let's make a second point that's related to the first. Secondly, resilient people understand the importance of rehearsing what God has done. Resilient people understand the importance of rehearsing what God has done. So this often looks like thanks. Thank you, God, for stirring in my life. Thank you, God, for drawing me in. Thank you, God, for the people in my life that have invested in me to bring me this far to get me here. Thank you, God, for your activity over the last several months. I see it now. Sometimes this looks like praise. Father, you are awesome. Jesus, what you did is utterly unimaginable. I praise you. 
We've made remembrance, remembrance, a recurring theme here at Gateway over the last few years, and for good reason. It was a recurring theme for the biblical authors. We knew we were launching into a new building project a few years ago, and we knew it would be tough sledding, so we started by focusing on what God had done. We, we spent a, a season at Gateway focusing on remembering. Later, we knew we were about to move into this new facility, and welcome, thank you for coming. And we knew it would be exciting and overwhelming, so we tried to remind ourselves of God's repeated faithfulness to us already. This is what resilient people do. They rehearse what God has done, and the act of remembering what God has done builds resilience. Let me give you some examples. For example, by way of encouraging the Israelites in the Old Testament to obey and to observe a day of rest for themselves, dedicated to God, Moses says it this way, remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Remember what God did? Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day because healthy remembrance inspires healthy life patterns. Another example, by way of exhorting these same Israelites to battle, Moses says this, don't be afraid of them. Remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt because healthy remembrance inspires healthy courage. The opposite is also true. Bad memory tracks have the reverse effect. During the time in the desert when the Israelites acted unfaithfully, their memories revolved around this. Look at this. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlics. We want to go back there. Resilient people understand the importance of rehearsing what God has done. This is why we gather on Sunday mornings at Gateway Community Church. This is why periodically I encourage all of us to spend regular time praying and reading the Bible. That kind of activity enables our rehearsal and our remembrance. Now, we don't specifically hear this habit in Joseph's life. We don't have examples of songs or prayers from him, but we know he spent time rehearsing God's faithfulness. We know it because of the fruit of his heart. If we move ahead in Joseph's life story, we find that his entire family has moved to Egypt. And his father Jacob eventually dies. And let's listen to what happens when Joseph's father dies. Chapter 50, verses 15 through 18. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? This is looking over your shoulder living. This is not running free of your past. So they sent word to Joseph saying, hey, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to Joseph, he wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. Joseph's brothers are still dealing with the shame of the past. Weighted down and fearful, they live with a kind of look-over-your-shoulder dread. But listen to Joseph's heart. Listen to who he is in this circumstance. Following on in verse 19. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. Joseph is free of the weight of the past. He only sees the activity of God. He's unencumbered, he's unburdened, and resilient people can live that way. They rehearse what God has done, and everything else is swallowed up in God's providence. Finally, resilient people deal effectively with the negative experiences in their life. 
They do not store them in the backpack. Here's an important principle. This next section is the, if you miss everything else, don't miss this part of today. Here is an important principle. We are all a mess. The Bible says we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And here's how we sometimes think about that sin part. We think, oh, I know, I used to have a sailor's mouth, but a lot better. But that's not what the Bible is talking about. When it talks about sin business, it's talking about how we relate to the world. It's talking about how we view the world, how we view ourselves, how we manage stress, how we deal with ourselves and others. And all of that is built on top of all those rocks in our backpack. We are a mess. Nobody gets to be the person who gets it all right. There's only been one of those. So in order for us to live with resilience, we will have to become people who deal effectively with the negative experiences in our lives. This keeps the mess at a minimum. It allows us to run light. Let's look at Joseph's story again, and let's take it back a generation. Joseph's father, Jacob, knew God, and he must have passed that knowledge on to his son, Joseph. But Jacob lived large parts of his life with an unrepaired past. If you know his story, you may remember that Jacob took advantage of his brother Esau, and he manipulated Esau out of his inheritance. And then when things got heated between Jacob and Esau, Jacob ran and fled the country. Later in life, circumstances arose, and he couldn't avoid coming home. He returned with absolute dread and fear. Lots and lots of shame Lots and lots of worry, all because he didn't take the principle of a repaired past seriously. Repairing the past is best done as quickly as possible. Someone should have told that to Jacob. Patching relationships that are wounded, dealing with regrets that fester in the soul, letting go of negative feelings towards someone who has betrayed a relationship. If we neglect these things, our lives deteriorate. Fortunately, the Bible gives us two rock-solid, foolproof tools with which to approach our past. And if you miss everything else this morning, don't miss this. So I'm going to give you the Bible's remedy for dealing with the negative experiences of our past. Each of these could be a series of messages, but let's skate over the top so that we at least have them registered. Those of you who have a connection to God and you know Jesus Christ, you'll be familiar with these. So let's let today be a reminder to us. Others of us, this will be instructive. The Bible gives us two things in dealing with the negative experiences in our past. When dealing with hurt, pain, disappointment, betrayal that someone else has perpetrated toward us, then the order of the day is forgiveness. And we're going to say it like this, get to forgiveness. That's what you and I need to do with the difficult things that have happened to us. If you want to live resiliently, you will have to forgive. Remember the prayer that Jesus taught us? It includes this phrase, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. At one point, when he was asked about the limits of forgiveness, Jesus told us essentially that there are no limits. There are no provisos. There are no conditions. No matter what has been done to you, there must be forgiveness. Now, I know in some cases this is not easy. Sometimes it's a long, difficult process. I'm not trying to skate over this, and there are resources available to help with this process if you need it. I'd be glad to get you started in the right direction if you need help. That's why I phrased it like this, get to forgiveness. Sometimes it's not an immediate thing, but we must get there. Our resilience depends on it. God doesn't require us to forgive for the sake of those who have hurt us. 
He requires it for us in order that we might run light and free. This is a critically important tool for us to use to live resiliently. The second tool that's utterly and critically important for you and I, when we've blown it, when we recognize something we have done to someone else or a pattern of behavior in our lives that has caused others problems, then we must confess and repent. I want you to notice how David does this in Psalm 51. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Notice that David does not allow himself any wiggle room. You are completely justified, God, in your judgment of me. I have blown it. There is no excuse. Listen, here's a rule. Whenever there is a breach in a relationship, that breach can only be repaired by confession and repentance. It's not long conversations. It's not proving my point. It can only be repaired through confession and repentance. Often it needs to be both parties who acknowledge their fault and repent. But at least one party always needs to do this work. So many times we simply ignore one another in silence until enough time has passed and we just move on. Another rock in the backpack. But not really. What we do is drop a pebble in. What we must do instead is confess and repent. And let me remind you that that word repentance means to make a change. Acknowledging you're wrong is not enough. We have to move toward change. Now, I know that's a long, complicated process, but it is a process that you and I must engage if we're going to run free of our past. Resilient people run free of the weight of the past. As a result, they run lighter, so they are more capable of handling change and difficulty and trials. They're more capable of running faithfully and consistently over the long haul without a collapse because they run free and they run light. So where do we begin? Let's end with this. I think a good place to begin for you and I, for all of us, is a good conversation with a trusted friend or a spouse. An actual exercise in dealing with our history and thinking through things and staying fresh on what patterns I use. Asking your friend or your spouse questions like, what do I usually do when we're in conflict? How do I make you feel when things are not going well here? What have you seen me do in relationship with others? It's worthwhile to do a memory exercise. I'll put one on our website on Tuesday. Examining your past, doing an exercise kind of like my life coach led me through that weekend. But I want you to know, I'm convinced I don't know where all of you are spiritually. I'm honored that you're here. But I'm convinced that all of this process begins with a real deepening and growing connection to God because of what Jesus Christ has done. He gives wisdom when wisdom is needed. He points at areas of sin when that's needed through his own voice in our heart and through our relationship with others. He inspires repentance and he enables forgiveness.
And ultimately, our past is eventually dealt with and swallowed up by his work on our behalf, by his death for us and his resurrection. All right, that's a lot. So let's catch our breath a minute because we need some mercy. Let's remember, after all, we're a mess. Don't you just look both longingly once in a while and even protectively over our teenagers. You guys, thank you so much for being here. Sorry to point you out. But, you know, they're just on the front edge of realizing what a mess they are. Those of you who went to college, you remember the experiences in college and you lived away from your home. You had the experience of being with a roommate. And you moved in with a roommate. And it wasn't long before you realized, golly, Moses, that person is a mess. It would be, for most of us, three, four, eight, ten years before we started to realize, golly, Moses, I'm a mess. And so then we dance, and we, we cover, and we construct walls, and we develop all kind of strategies to hide that mess or minimize that mess from others with whom we are in relationship. And the Bible encourages us in exactly the opposite direction. Dive into that mess. Are you kidding? No, because it's going to go with you no matter how much you hide it. You don't think other people notice, but they do. And trust me, we talk about you when you're not around. And we don't know what's exactly in your backpack. But we see your shoulders slumping when things go really well for some of you. Or when things go really badly, we see the weight. When you have difficulty, we sense it in you. And if you sit and do nothing, you'll be fine. But as soon as you need to do something relationally, you're going to be weighed down if you don't deal with the contents of the backpack. Because resilient people run free of the weight of the past, and the only way to do that is to deal with it. That's why so often when Jesus had interactions with people, and the messier they were, the more likely he was to say this. He would say, hey, you're forgiven. Now go and don't be a mess anymore. Go and don't do this same relational pattern. Go and sin no more. You can. And I imagine if Jesus had been able to walk with that person for the next few weeks, there would have been times when he would have said, you're doing it again. Stop. We talked about this. You're free of that. Let's get rid of that rock. Some of those rocks I added in earlier when I was telling that story about my dad. As I, I went away for that Saturday and reflected on that, it was amazing to me how much it enlightened my understanding of my own need to please people. I've spent my marriage trying to please Diane. I've spent my years here in Northern Virginia trying to please you, the ones of you that I've known well and long, because there's still within me a nine-year-old boy. I didn't mean to let him run me down. I'm sorry I want that bicycle. It's just everybody else has it, and that other one is ridiculous. <laughs> just wanting to please. And oh, it's so freeing 
to be distant from that and to run light of that, to run free. That starts right here. I want us to do something that followers of Jesus do regularly, especially when we gather together. We're going to have a time of confession. So whatever has bubbled to the surface for you this morning, I want you to talk to him about it. And if you've just been sitting there minding your own business, let's use this 60 seconds to say, Father, what needs to bubble to the surface? What rock has been especially difficult for me to carry? And let's do this to make sure that we're at attention. Let's stand together and let's go to the Lord in silent confession. You need to think through your week and think through your month. And then let's think over the scope of how we enter into relationships. And let's dial back to the last conflict we had or some situation like that. And let's let God speak. So let's pray. Father, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we've done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. And we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have withheld forgiveness. We have been angrier than we had a right to be. We have been guarded and distant. Oh Lord, forgive us and enable us to forgive others. We acknowledge and confess this morning that we're a mess. And we ask that you would enable us to change, to run free, to move in a different direction, to repent. Lord, we stand today, we actively, by faith, we stand against our desire to run or our desire to hide or our desire to deflect or our desire to cover or our desire to deny. And today we open up our backpack and we bring those rocks that we've been carrying into the light. We ask in Jesus' name that you would set us free. We ask that you would be merciful, that you would forgive, and we pray for your peace. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. And all God's people said,